Thank you for joining us. For your encouragement, we bring to you this biblical sermon from Dr. Charlie Dates, preached at the Progressive Baptist Church in Chicago. We hope that it leaves you refreshed and inspired. If you're ever in Chicago on a Sunday, we'd love to have you in worship with us. Join now. This message already in progress. Please stand and join me in John chapter 20. John chapter 20, verses 19. When you've got it, say, I got it. If you need me to wait a moment, say, hold up. All right, John chapter 20. So when it was evening, on that day, the first day of the week, And when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst. And he said to them, peace be with you. Skipping down to verse 24, it says, but Thomas, but one of the 12 called Didymus was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut and stood in their midst and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here with your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Jesus answered and said to him, or Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who do not see and yet believe. It seems strange that on the backside of the highest and holiest day of the year that I would be talking about doubt, but that's exactly what happened after the resurrection. I wanna preach from the topic, when your faith is in question. You may be seated. On the YouTube series entitled, Why I Don't Go, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew 3 Project, sits down with Christians and former Christians to discuss why they no longer go to church, why some of them have left the faith altogether. The intention of the series is to help churches better understand the feelings of those who are in their pews. I became interested in the series because of the amount of people that I know personally who have not returned since the pandemic. It used to be that this was a concern for only millennials and Gen Z, but in February of this year, Barna published a report that even boomers and Gen X are leaving the church at higher numbers than younger generations. So I watched the series curious as to the reasons people are leaving the church. What I found in watching episode after episode is that there is not just one single reason that dominated the breakup between church and its members, but rather it was a variety of reasons. Some people didn't like the people. Some people didn't feel welcome. Others felt that they were better off practicing their faith somewhere else. Others felt that Christianity was something that was inherited, not something that they believed for themselves. These and many other reasons are what motivated many not to come back. But one of the reasons that caught my attention because it kept reoccurring is that people left the church because they had questions. Questions that they felt were not answered by their pastors or questions that they didn't like the answer to or questions that were answered better by people outside of the church. Is Christianity a white man's religion? How does my faith relate to sexuality? If God is so good, why does he let bad things happen to good people? These are good questions that need good answers. 
The records of church history confirm this to be true. It was Socrates who said, an unexamined life is not worth living. The 60s held the model, question everything. From one perspective, the history of Christianity is nothing but a series of questions asked by people committed to a life of intense scrutiny. All generations of Christians ask their own questions, wrestle, doubt, and ask more questions. As they examine the Christian identity and search for meaning in their lives, various experiences in our lives and in our world cause us to ask questions, and rightfully so. From our historical vantage point, it's quite right that Christians should continually ask new questions and regularly revisit old ones, but asking questions is not what concerns me today. What concerns me is that it seems for many of us today, questions used to be exactly that, a quest, a journey in which we were held to our faith while even in the face of doubt. But now in the information age, when we have more access to information, we no longer have patience for the journey. We see unanswered questions as reasons not to believe. Questions have become dead ends for us. It used to be that faith was something we held on to despite profound questions and doubt. One cannot correctly understand the black religious experience without an affirmation of deep faith informed by profound doubt. How could anyone believe in a God that seemed nowhere to be found in the face of such horrendous sufferings as slavery and segregation or lynchings? We are still, to this day, living through what has happened to our people, but the questions and doubts that arose from that era did not dull the faith of black people. It enhanced it. It sharpened it. And why was that? Because they knew doubt does not have the final word. The final word is faith, giving rise to hope in a resurrected Savior who endured the same sufferings that we do but we're not satisfied with unanswered questions. We think answers will produce in us automatic faith, and yet we find in an age of information where easy answers are quick to come by, where we have access to more knowledge than any previous time on earth, that despite having more information, we have less believers. Jesus knew this. Of his three-year ministry, he was asked some 183 questions. You know how many he answered directly? Less than 10. Instead, more often than not, Jesus asked more questions. 307 questions to be exact. Is it because Jesus didn't have the answer? No. Is it because Jesus was wishy-washy? No. Is it because he was afraid of what the answers might reveal about him? N no. No, I don't think it's any of those reasons. I think it's because he's not after just giving us easy answers. He's after our belief. He wants us to, he wants to know if we will trust him despite what it looks like, who will hold on despite what happens to them, who will believe him when others say it doesn't make sense. Getting the answers to every one of our questions doesn't produce followers of Jesus Christ. Believing that he is who he says he is does. And yet at the same time, I know some of you this morning have questions of Jesus. And this morning, I do not know if I have all the answers for your questions. But I do offer you this morning a picture of how Jesus handled those who struggle with questions and doubt. Our text first shows us that he's present in our uncertainty. He is with us when we doubt. Our text opens by telling us that on the evening of the resurrection, the disciples too were full of questions. Can you see them? Gathered together in the upper room, the place where they had just been with Jesus the night before he was betrayed. But this time, Peter is sitting with his head hung in regret. He had denied Jesus. How could God ever forgive him for what he had done? James and John, those who fought for a place to sit at Jesus' right and left when he was going to come into his kingdom, were nowhere to be found when Jesus was mockingly crowned king of the Jews. 
they too sat there wondering with questions. The rest of the disciples were shaking in fear. The text says that they were afraid for their lives, afraid that the same people who killed Jesus were coming after them too. Can you see them checking the window to see if anyone was coming? Where once the room was filled with laughter and the breaking of bread, now this same room was filled with uncertainty and questions. Jesus had been crucified. What are we supposed to do now, they're wondering. We left our jobs believing him. We left our families. I thought Jesus had more power than that. How could he have let him get them, him like that? How can I go show my face to others now that they know that I walked with this man? What am I supposed to do? To make matters more complex, they also didn't know who to believe. Some people had started talking about Jesus having been raised from the dead. Many, Mary and other women had posted on their social media feed that they had seen Jesus outside of the tomb. But when we clicked and read the caption, the details didn't seem to line up. It said that the stone had been rolled away and that the grave clothes were still there. It doesn't make sense, not after the way that we saw Jesus die. There's no way he could have gotten up, could he? But then the local politicians went on live breaking news and said Jesus had not, in fact, risen from the dead. In fact, it was a radical extremist group who had stolen Jesus' body and had hidden somewhere. But their facts didn't line up either because it was their government that was guarding the tomb. How would people have gotten past the government? How, with all the surveillance we have, how did they not see where the body was hidden? So the, the text says that they were afraid. They were trying to figure out life while locked in a room of uncertainty. Anyone ever been there? We live in a world of uncertainty the world of anxiety, a world where there is a lack of peace. There is no longer a belief of absolute truth, where wrong is said to be right and right is said to be wrong, where everything is packaged as believable, but it's still not real, where everything is fake tabloids fighting for our attention, salespeople make promises they never intend to deliver on, where you can't trust people's faces anymore because makeup is even lying to us, in a world where fake news has no way of gauging who is credible or coming to conclusions ourselves. Politicians steer us wrong, police craft false testimonies, family members betray us, and so in a world where we do not know what to believe, many people don't. They become skeptical or doubtful. Our questions lead to a lack of peace, and a lack of peace is leading to a lack of faith, and before we know it, like the disciples, we are leading lives behind locked doors of uncertainty. Uncertain about global warming, uncertain about the CPS school system, uncertain about if church is worth any more of my time, uncertain about my marriage, uncertain about my retirement fund. Am I talking to anybody? Uncertain about the doctor's report, uncertain about how you're gonna raise these kids all by yourself, uncertain if you'll ever find a spouse, uncertain if you'll ever be able to have children. We're even uncertain about ourselves, uncertain if we're good enough, uncertain if we're lovable enough, uncertain if I'm the right person for the job. Anybody knows what it feels like to be uncertain? How it feels to be locked in a room of uncertainty? But I've got good news for anyone who's feeling the uneasiness of uncertainty this morning. For anyone suffering from skepticism and doubt, who are trapped in questions sometimes of our own making, who can't seem to make sense of what has happened to them, the scriptures testify that Jesus came. <laughs> the disciples had locked themselves up, but Jesus showed up. The disciples had, were afraid, and Jesus stood in the midst of their questions, fears, and doubts. What are your locked doors in your life? to the one who is the door. If Jesus can pass through grave clothes and tomb doors, what makes you think he can't stop by and pay a visit to any fear and insecurity that you have? He can go where no doctor can go. He can no go where no spouse can go. He can go where no counselor can go. He can reach into you in places that no one else can touch and he can stand in the midst. When you find yourself in the middle of uncertainty, truth himself comes and stands in the midst of you.
Someone is here today who is wrestling with uncertainty. It's almost making you feel like you're going to lose your mind. You do not know what else to do. You're at the end of your rope. You think it's time to throw in the towel. You've got questions and nobody seems to have the answer. But I'm here to tell you that Jesus is here to stand in your midst today. Truth is coming through your locked doors. And look at the first thing he says to the disciples when he enters the room. He says, peace. Maybe the truth is we don't need more answers, we just need peace. Maybe we don't need more money, we just need peace. Maybe we don't need to know how it's going to work out, we just need peace. I'm talking about the peace that doesn't make sense. I'm talking about the peace that the wind and the waves have to obey. Peace for your job, peace for your marriage, peace for your kids, peace when you're driving on the highway, peace when you're walking in the, in the house, peace when you lay your bed down in your bed at night, peace. You need his peace. When we have questions, Jesus is present in our uncertainty, but he's also patient with our demands for answers. The disciples had seen Jesus and their uncertainty was exchanged for peace and they rejoiced. But look at verse 24, it says, but Thomas, one of the 12 called Didymus was not with them. Turn to your neighbor and say, that's why you shouldn't miss church. You shouldn't miss church because you never know when Jesus is going to show up. We're, we're not told. We're not told where Jesus was or, how, or Thomas was or how long he was away. We are simply told that the other disciples kept saying to him, kept pleading with him to tell him we have seen Jesus. Look at him pleading. Thomas, I know it sounds crazy, but we saw him. One minute we didn't know what to do, and the next minute he was standing right before us. He really is who he said he is. Thomas, I'm telling you, we saw him. But Thomas couldn't wrap his mind around it. It made no sense. He had watched Jesus die. How could that be true? Their grief must have been playing tricks on them. Thomas had good questions. He had hard questions that he felt nobody could answer. So the text says he doubted. Now, I think it's unfortunate that we've characterized Thomas off of this one moment, especially for something that we ourselves do all the time. But that's often what we do of people when they seem to not be able to believe like we do. We assume that if people don't just believe easy, they somehow are weak in faith, or that if to doubt in some way means that they don't have any faith at all. But though scripture shows us that Thomas didn't believe in this moment, it nowhere calls him a doubter. Instead, it paints a much different picture of him. It was Thomas who, when Jesus risked his life to raise Lazarus from the dead, said, I'll go with you, even if it means I have to die with you, while the other disciples tried to talk Jesus out of it. Yeah, it was that Thomas. When, John, when Jesus in John 14 said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, so that is where I am, you may be also. You know the way to the place I am going. And Thomas said, yep, I'm ready to go, but tell me, Lord, where are you going? What is the way? To which Jesus said, I am the way. And Thomas followed him. You see, what I'm trying to show you is that Thomas was no weak Christian. He was with Jesus and had watched him heal people. He had seen him feed the multitudes. He had seen the lame walk. He had saw Jesus exercise demons. He had even seen people raised from the dead. 
Some of you know what I'm talking about. You've seen God provide for you. He's healed your body. He's changed the doctor's diagnosis. He's made ways where there is no way. And I'm talking to my, am I talking to myself because he's protected me. He's protected you. He's given you a roof over your head and food over your table. He's been better to you than you've been to yourself. He continues to bless you even to this day. He gave you breath in your body, a song on your lips, joy in your heart. He continues to be that kind of good God. You've seen too much. You've heard too much. You know he is a good God. But despite the fact that we know this, there are still times we doubt. Some of the greatest believers in faith doubted. John the Baptist doubted. The first one to announce, there he is, Jesus, the Messiah. A year later wrote Jesus a letter saying, are you the one? It was Peter, Jesus's most ride or die disciple, who literally had enough faith to step out on water and begin to walk on it, but then looked around and realized, uh-oh, this ain't supposed to happen, and began to doubt and began to sink. He, he doubted. Doubt is not always a sign of weakness. It could be a sign of faith holding on even in the shadow of doubt. But my question is, what makes a person who has seen so much, experienced so much, walked with someone so faithfully, suddenly question? You wanna know what it is? You wanna know what it is? Here it is. When God has the audacity not to conform to the story we wrote for him. When we know God has power, but he doesn't use it. When God could heal, but he doesn't. When God could save, but he lets it fail. When what we are told to be true about him doesn't match up with our experiences, those are the times that we question God. Those are the times we wonder if he is really who he says he is. You see, I think Thomas wasn't originally with the other's disciples, not because he didn't love them, not because he wasn't any less afraid, but because being around the other disciples was a reminder of a God who had let him down. It's a hard thing when church is no longer a sanctuary for you, but it's a place of disappointment. When the very one you're supposed to be worshiping is the very one who has hurt you. Thomas was confused. He thought Jesus was full of power. He thought he was the Messiah. How could he heal others? How could he let those Roman guards take him like that? He showed himself to be who he was to all these other people, but when the, when the Roman government asked him if he was who he said he was, he didn't even open his mouth. I saw him have power to heal people, but yet when they beat him, he just let them? I watched him hang on the cross. Cursed is anyone who hangs on the cross. My God hanging on a cross? He said he was the son of God, but yet he also was crying out, Father, why have you forsaken me? He claimed to be God, but then God died? He had the nerve to die? And I watched him die. And then we tuck his body off the cross and we, we wrapped it in linens and we laid it in the tomb. I hear what you guys are saying. You keep telling me you've seen Jesus, but I don't care what you say. I've got questions. And unless I see the imprint of his nails, or unless I am able to put my finger into the place of those nails, unless I put my hand into the place of his side, unless Jesus answers my questions, I will not believe him. Unless he tells me why he allowed my daddy to leave me, unless he tells me why my stepmother was able to touch me that way, unless he answers why he allowed that divorce to happen, unless he tells me why that doctor's diagnosis came out the way it was, unless he answers my questions, I will not believe him. This is what we do. And the crazy thing is, 
the text is silent. It doesn't say that Jesus condemned Thomas. It doesn't say that he immediately responded to him. No, it's silent. God lets us sit in our questions. And I'm here to encourage someone who feels like God has gone silent. That sometimes his silence is his kindness. He's allowing you. To fully voice your frustrations with him uninterrupted. Jesus is silent. And this is a critical moment. Because for many, this is the moment when they would typically say, I'm done with this. I've had enough. There are no answers to my questions. Therefore, I should not believe in a God like this. So what do we do when we find ourselves here? Ask me, what do we do? We allow our questions to drive us to Jesus. The text says that eight days later, the disciples gathered together again, and this time Thomas was with them. Don't let your questions drive you from God. Let them drive you to God. Thomas showed up because he wanted to see if God would make good on these demands. And what I find amazing, what I find so amazing, is that again the text says, Jesus came. But this time he didn't come for the crowd. He came for the one. And I don't know about any of you, but I've been that one. The one that Jesus came for. I could see if he came for the one that halfway liked him. I could see if he came for the one that believed him. I could see if he came for the one who knew how to put all of his answers into great theological categories, but he came for the one that was about to walk away from him. He came for the one who, was, who didn't have it together. He came for the one, and I, I guess I'm trying to testify, has anybody been that one? Does anyone know what it's like that Jesus came back from you when you were still stuck in your mess? You didn't have it together. You didn't have the answers. You didn't even halfway like him or want to follow him, but he still came and showed up for you. Jesus came specifically for Thomas. And just like he showed up for Thomas, he'll show up for you. Oh, and when he shows up. When he shows up, he shows Thomas his hands. He shows Thomas his side. It's as if he knows that his wounds can testify for him. In that moment, he shows us, he knows what it feels like to be hurt. He shows us what it feels like to have questions. He knows what it feels like to wonder where God has gone in our lives. But even more so, he shows us that our God is not a God who is unconcerned with the things that bothers us. He shows us that God can actually be touched. That God moves heaven and earth to make our problems his problems. That God cares so deeply with how we feel that he, he decided to start trying to feel how, exactly how we feel too. And in that moment, when Jesus' wounds begin to testify, Thomas's doubts had to be exchanged for belief. He had to make his questions bow down to a resurrected Savior who had shown up with all power in his hands because his wounds testify. His wounds testify to our wounds. His wounds testify to our questions. His wounds testify to our doubts. His wounds show us that the answers are only found in him. Jesus is present in our uncertainty. 
He's patient with our demands for answers. But then finally, he also challenges us with his own questions. After Thomas had witnessed Jesus, all he could do was cry, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus says to him, because you've seen me, now do you believe? Because I prove myself to you, now do you believe? Why do you believe? Are you expecting Jesus to always give you your answers? Or have you seen enough of who he is to say, no, 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 he's my Lord and my God. Jesus isn't asking for you to understand him. He's asking for you to believe him. And he says, blessed are those who believe and who have not seen. May we all then be those who still ask questions. But even when we don't have the answers, our confidence comes in the fact that we have a resurrected savior. And that is good enough for me. Let the name of the Lord be praised. Thank you for listening. Tune in next week for another uplifting and inspiring message by Dr. Charlie Dates, Senior Pastor of the Progressive Baptist Church in Chicago. For more information about our church, visit ProgressiveChicago.org. Progress is yours through the gospel of Jesus Christ.